Miss for Children's Church, and could someone turn the projector off, please? Pretty please? Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 14. The notes are in the bulletin, and they're extensive. We're going to cover half a chapter this morning, but I think we have to cover the first 12 verses to sort of get the whole flow of the argument and where Paul's going with it. What we'll be studying today is avoiding conflicts in matters of conscience, Christian liberty, and how can a diverse body coexist together in peace. So let's read Romans 14, 1 to 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself." For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Lord God, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding as we look at this passage. Lord, we pray that we would um, love each other and welcome each other and not quarrel over matters of conscience. This is so practical for the body's life. How are we to coexist with differing beliefs and differing convictions? How can we be a unified body? Um, Lord, so we pray that from your word you would show us how and that you would uh, be pleased to glorify yourself in our midst. Establish your word as that which causes fear for you and open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Amen. Paul's letter to the Romans, we are now into the practical section. We are now in the chapters that show how Christians are to live out the gospel. And, and I keep re-emphasizing this because chapter 14 is not chapter 1. Chapter 14 assumes all the chapters that came before it. This could easily be misunderstood as simple moral principles for a virtuous life. And, and if you think that's what this is about, you're missing the point. Rather, what Paul has been unpacking since chapter 12, verse 1, is what a life built upon the gospel looks like. So don't skip to the application and skip over the gospel. What we're going to study today as we study Christian liberty is how born-again believers, those who are trusting in Christ, are to live. You don't become a Christian by living this way. 
You become a Christian by trusting in Christ. And then Paul's saying, if you understand the gospel, if your faith is growing, this is how you will live. So even though the last few weeks have been heavily based on moral principles, how to live, how to conduct ourselves, don't mistake this as, as works salvation. Rather, these are the fruit that the gospel tree should bear in our lives. And it may seem like a sudden change of topic for Paul to just introduce this concept. I mean, last week we were looking at the return of Jesus Christ, our great eschatological hope. And then chapter 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith. And, and, and you might ask, well, how on earth did we get here? But just keep reading. The connecting thought is back with uh, Romans 13, 13. Paul says, accept him not to quarrel. And in the section on the return of the Lord, what are some of the works that we are to put off? In verse 13, we read, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So that's the connecting thought. Paul has just told us that if we are comprehending and fixing our hope on Jesus' soon return, then we're going to put off these works of darkness. And, and one of the things we're to put off is conflict and quarreling. And so chapter 14 then begins a very specific situation where quarreling and conflict can come. And that is Christians with differing convictions. Christians with differing conscience issues. I mean, imagine the church at Rome. The, the center of the Roman Empire. All the different types of class and strata coming together in fellowship. One writer puts it this way. The church was never meant to be a cozy club of like-minded people, of one race, one social position, or intellectual caliber. Christians are not clones, identical in all respects. One of the difficulties the church has always faced is that included in its membership are the rich, the poor, the powerful and the powerless, those from every stratum of society, the old and the young, adults and children, conservatives and radicals, people from a great number of nations are Christians, and people of every temperament. This is a wonderful thing about the church, and most of us have been thrilled at one time to contemplate the rich variety there is in Christ, but this very variety puts strains on us. How are we to coexist within one church? And one answer is just to Find a church that everyone agrees with you. So you can find, you know, um, different churches catering to different styles, different convictions. But that's not the answer Paul puts forward. He doesn't encourage the Romans to create eight different churches with differing convictions. Rather, he gives us instructions how many different backgrounds and convictions can exist in one church. And that's the path to maturity and growth. So we're going to look at this in five points in our notes and try to wrap our heads around um, how we are to do this. How do we not let conflict come from the fact that we are going to have differing backgrounds, different associations with things, different convictions over issues? So first, we've got to look at the potential for conflict. What we're talking about here, these are not matters of clear command. That's the first thing to understand. Paul is telling us about liberty and conflict, but he's not talking about matters of clear command. The examples he gives of eating meat or not eating meat, of, of observing days or not observing days. He doesn't say one person's faith allows him to rob banks, another person's faith does not. These are not matters of clear command we're talking about. There are laws and commands in the New Testament. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We're not talking about those. 
We're not talking about clear instructions from the Bible. Rather, these are matters of conscience and wisdom. Matters of conscience and wisdom. So there are matters that the Bible speaks to plainly and clearly, and that is binding for all believers. That's not a matter of personal opinion. It's not a matter of strong faith and weak faith. It's just a matter of divine fiat, God's command to us. There are other matters where there's liberty, where there's freedom, where there's individual consciences and wisdom. That's what we're talking about here. And so Paul instructs the strong, presumably, in verse 1, to accept the weak. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. So who are the weak? That's the next question we've got to ask. Who are the weak? Most likely, they are a Jewish minority in the Roman church. And the reason we get this is their struggle is with eating meat, certain meats, and with celebrating certain days. And look in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now that's an inherently Jewish category, the clean and the unclean. Um, So what we're likely dealing with are Jewish Christians who, while freed from the law of Moses, are still having a hard time eating bacon, you know? Um, and not celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday. I mean, the Christians were gathering on the first day of the week on Sunday. And, you know, if you've been a Jew all your life observing the Sabbath, to all of a sudden say, well, you know, you don't have to do that, that might be difficult, that might be tough. And it's important to know that these weak are not legalists. They are not legalists. And that's important because the book of Galatians is written to refute error of a Jewish minority at Galatia who hold similar views, but the difference is there, Paul blasts them. I mean, go read Galatians, and Paul comes out guns blazing at the Judaizers, the ones who would insist and force everyone to circumcision and to the Mosaic law. And Paul says, you're corrupting the gospel, you're severed from Christ, you're cut off from grace. That's not what he says here. These are not those people. These are not people who are trying to create law and rules and tie it to the gospel. And it's important we get this because the term legalist gets thrown around so easily. The way it generally works is this. Anyone whose convictions are more tight and narrow than mine is a legalist, right? That's generally how it works. So here I am, or you are, and anyone who's slightly more conservative, slightly more restrictive, well, they're legalistic. And anyone who's, who's got more liberty, well, they're licentious and they're, you know, they're not very serious. And amazingly, each and every one of us just happens to land in the perfect spot, right? <laughs> um, and so it's important to recognize these guys aren't legalists. They, they hold to stricter views of things. Their conscience is restricting some of their freedom, and they're not legalists. Read Galatians. That, those are the legalists. And the key difference is They're going beyond my conscience for me, for my conscience for you. And they're tying it to the gospel. So just because someone has narrower convictions than you do, doesn't mean they're legalistic. Legalism is teaching man's precepts as God's law. Or legalism is works, righteousness, and salvation. Those are the two things that legalism can be. It can either be teaching man's principles as God's law, that's legalism, to others, or it's attaching works to the gospel. It's not simply being conservative and having tight, narrow views. 
The second thing to note is they're not weak in their love and devotion to the Lord. They're not weak in their love and devotion to the Lord. Literally in the Greek, it could be the one who is weak in the faith. It's not necessarily saying that their faith itself is weak, but they are weak ones in the faith. And and we know that because look at verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. Both parties, the strong and the weak, are acting in faith with a desire and a heart to honor God. They're giving thought to what they're doing. Paul does not say that the weak person is somehow less committed to Christ, less um, intent on pleasing. And they've actually given a lot of thought to what they're doing, and they are honoring God. And Paul says that's wonderful. They are honoring God with their observance of the day because they honor the day to him. They're honoring God with their observance from eating certain meats because they're doing it with a heart towards God. So they're not weak in their faith. These are not weak believers who aren't quite as committed to Christ as others. Rather, the issue is their conscience is uninformed. Their conscience is uninformed. And we see that just looking ahead a little further in Romans 14, 14, where we've already read, I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. The problem here is information. These Christians think there's something wrong with the meat. Their conscience is bothered by it. They, They aren't sure if it pleases God for them to eat it, and so they don't eat it. It's not an issue of big faith and little faith. Um, it, it, Paul classifies it as strong and weak, but what we're looking at is information. Does my conscience cause me to doubt about certain things? In, in 1 Corinthians 8, where a similar issue came up, this is more having to do with a pagan background of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul puts it this way. It's very similar in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 7. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. But although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as if it were really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Again, it's an information issue. It's an informed conscience issue. And and so some of us coming from various backgrounds associate certain actions, certain activities with certain things, and, and our conscience nags at us. And Paul is saying to, to, to yield to that is a good thing. To, to yield to your conscience in, in deference to the Lord, to say, I'm not sure, my con- I'm not sure if God is pleased with this, so I'm not going to do it. It's a great thing. They, the, the weak here are honoring Christ and God with their actions. Their weakness is simply one of information, not fully grasping the liberty and the freedom they have in Christ. And Paul doesn't say, look down on them. He doesn't say, well, you know, hopefully they'll grow up. He says, accept them. Accept them. So who are the strong? If that's who the weak are, then who are the strong? They are not carnal. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about a class of fleshly or immature or carnal believers. That's not who these guys are. 
Again, if they were, Paul would speak to them as he does in 1 Corinthians. You see, there are some Christians who embrace their liberty because they've prayed about it, they've thought about it, their conscience is clean, they're fully persuaded in their own mind, and they embrace their liberty as unto the Lord, and there are other Christians who don't even think about it and just think, I'm just gonna do what I want. And these aren't those people. These are the people who've thought it through. In 1 Corinthians 6, there are actually Christians using the strong freedom argument who are sleeping with prostitutes. And Paul rebukes it. Their slogan is, all things are lawful for me. And Paul has to come in and correct them. That's not what's going on here. There's a huge difference between a believer who has prayerfully thought through issues of conscience, come to convictions, and then in faith is acting upon them That's one thing. That's what we're dealing with here. And then there's the person who hasn't thought through anything, doesn't want to think through it for fear that he may not be able to do what he wants to do. We've never done that, right? We've never, I don't want to think through this because if I think through it, I might not be able to do what I want to do. If that's where you're at, you're you're not the strong. We're going to see that the strong, just as equally as the weak, are doing things unto the Lord with thankfulness, fully convinced in their own minds. That's who the strong are in this context. So just as some people who might think they're the weak are really legalists, there are some people who might think they are the strong who are really just licentious and carnal. But that's not who Paul's talking to here. We've got to focus on who are we talking to. We're talking to the strong. They are faithful in love and devotion to the Lord. And again, we see that in verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So both parties are honoring God, giving thanks to God. Both parties are fully convinced in their own mind. That's what we're talking about here. So they are faithful in their love and devotion to the Lord, and their conscience is informed. That's the difference. Their conscience is informed. They've got a fuller grasp of the liberty and freedom they have in Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And, and some Christians grasp that in their conscience, and they feel a freedom in what they eat, and others do not. And, and if you don't have that information, Paul says, don't argue, don't get in conflict about it. Receive each other. So these are who we're talking about, the weak and the strong. And likely with us, in some circumstances, we're the weak, and in some circumstances, we're the strong. It's likely that every one of us here has some practices, some convictions, some positions on matters that would put them in both categories. Maybe there are some things you do that other Christians in the room wouldn't do. You've thought about it. You've prayed about it. It's not a command issue, and your conscience is clean. You do it unto the Lord. You're the strong brother. And there may be other things people in this room do who, no, you wouldn't do that. There's some of these categories. In this text, the categories that come up are food, observing days, and issues of drinking. In verse 17, that comes up. Um... For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then down in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So we're talking about food, talking about alcohol, talking about observance of days. And, and for our modern context, we could probably add in other categories like 
dress to corporate worship. People have different convictions on what appropriate dress is. Music you listen to, styles of music in the worship service. Um, there's a huge list, I'm sure, what types of movies to watch, how strong of a rating is tolerable. I'm sure in this room, there are people who've thought through that and landed at different convictions. And the list could go on and on and on of issues where there's no clear command, but there's wisdom principles in God's word. And, and we're gonna see if you're the strong brother or the weak brother, what you are to do. That's where we're moving on to in point three, how the strong and the weak must peaceably coexist with it. How the strong and the weak must peaceably coexist with it. So understand in some circumstances you're going to be the strong and you're going to get your marching orders here and in other circumstances you're going to be the weak and you're going to get your marching orders here. So in different circumstances these different commands are going to speak to us. And let me say one other thing. This week we're simply governing in Paul's text operations within the church. This, this is not the only word on Christian liberty. Paul doesn't take into consideration unbelievers and reputation. And next week, we're gonna take into consideration those believers who are gonna be tempted to sin, and, and we're gonna see how you should yield your liberty rather than put a stumbling block in front of someone. So our focus this week is simply two believers in the Lord, in the same church, differing convictions. How are they to coexist? All things being equal. First, we see they must welcome each other and not quarrel. That's just verse one. They must welcome each other and not quarrel. And this comes out of the fact that the works of the flesh are quarreling and jealousy in, in chapter 13, verse 13. This word for welcoming is to embrace, to receive. And with that whole sort of put off, put on mentality, put off quarreling, put on welcoming. They're to welcome each other. And it's not just to have an opportunity to get in an argument. I'm glad to see you. Let's talk about, that's not what's going on here. It's a welcoming. James talks about demonic wisdom that breeds strife and enmity and envy. And then he goes on to ask in chapter four, what causes quarrels and what causes conflicts? Is it not this, your desires that wage war within you? And so Paul is telling them here to not quarrel with their different competing desires because my conviction's best, don't you know? You should be a godly person like me and share my convictions. Here, I'll help you. And, and Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Welcome each other. Accept each other. Moving on, the strong must not despise the weak. The strong must not despise the weak. If you're here today and, and your conscience prayerfully allows you to do certain things that other believers don't, do not pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that you're a godly, wise Christian, and if only others could be like you, they'd be godly and wise too. Don't look down on your neighbor. If your conscience allows you to do things and you've thought it through biblically, praise God and keep it to yourself. Don't look down on your neighbor. Don't look down on the person with narrower convictions because they're trying to please God just as much as you are. That's what Paul's saying here. Both parties are trying to honor and serve the Lord. And so there's no basis for looking down on others. Likewise, the weak are not to judge the strong. Because of course the temptation here for the weak is if your conscience is tempting you, is, is causing you to think there's something wrong with eating meat or 
you've got to observe this day or you, or you can't drink wine or whatever it is, then you're tempted to think it really is a black and white biblical issue. Which is why you've got to, this text presupposes there's been some biblical study and discussion because you may very well be sitting here thinking there's, that an issue is black and white and biblical when in reality it's not. And the only way you're going to find out testing our convictions is by opening our Bibles and talking. Paul does not forbid discussing these issues. He forbids quarreling. So if, if I see Greg doing something, Greg Rulak, that, that I think is wrong, I have a conviction against, I'm free to go talk to him and say, hey Greg, um, I think this is a biblical command issue and we can open our Bibles and if it is, then you know, Greg hears me and praise God. If not, then we come to realize, well actually this is kind of a gray area. Actually, this isn't an issue of command. And, and then I've got to be satisfied with Greg saying, Jeremy, I appreciate you talking to me. I just want to let you know I've prayed about this. I've thought it through and my conscience is clean and I believe I'm doing it to the glory of God, at which point I need to drop it. That's fine. So the weak, if they think it's a black and white issue, should go lovingly talk to their brother. But once they discover, actually, this is kind of a gray area, at that point, they need to resist the temptation to judge and it's such an easy, slippery thing that happens. Um, well-meaning people can slide into this error of creating rules and, and laws. And it's not just a problem. In Rome, turn in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul speaks on the same issue. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are the same issues that were up in Rome. Food, drink, observance of days. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the danger is there's some believers who are to pass judgment. They're going to judge. But read on a little further, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." See, and Paul exposes some of the thinking that is easy for us to slide into, which is, yes, I know the Bible doesn't forbid this, but wouldn't it be a good idea just to make a rule against it anyway, since people can get into trouble with it? That's usually the arguments I hear about alcohol. You know, I know the scripture doesn't forbid it, and I know Jesus made wine for his first miracle, but with so many people struggling with alcohol and with the potential of Testimony with the potential of a person getting ensnared into it, wouldn't it really just be a good idea to make a rule not to drink? And let me say, if that's your own personal conviction, praise God. Paul says, do that unto the Lord, give him glory. Wonderful. The problem becomes, well, that's my conviction and I think it should be yours, is when the problem occurs. And that's what's going on in, in Colossae. And Paul says, don't submit to it, don't let anyone judge you in that way. And it's such an easy thing to happen. I was at a church once where 
The senior pastor held that conviction for godly reasons. That was his own practice. Praise God. It's wonderful. He does it in honor to the Lord. And as the senior pastor gathers men around him who are being discipled and trained, they, they do what Scripture says. They imitate his faith. They think that's a good conviction too. And before you know it, the leadership of the church all share the same conviction. And then, somewhere along the line, a rule came into place that any other people wanting to join the leadership of the church must also share this conviction. And now we've crossed that line of making rules that the scripture doesn't make. They may seem, Paul says here, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Rules aren't going to change your heart. They aren't going to do it. In Mark 7, Jesus deals with some people who take the traditions of men and, and make rules out of them. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And I'm not saying there aren't good, wise reasons why a person may abstain from drinking alcohol. I'm sure there are. I've heard some good ones. But what we're forbidden from doing is adding to what God has written in his word by making new rules that God hasn't made, making new laws that aren't written. And Paul says, look, some people are going to arrive at that conviction, others aren't. Accept them. All that matters is they've thought it through prayerfully. They're doing it unto the Lord. There are commandments against drunkenness. Absolutely. But as different people land on this issue differently, those who do drink have got to not pat themselves on the shoulder for being so mature, and those who don't need to not judge those who do. And let me make one other observation. There's a huge difference between thinking something through biblically and just doing what you want to do. And it's always the immature believer. It's not a sign of maturity, but a sign of immaturity to not think these things through. The easiest way to identify this is the person who asks, well, what's wrong with it? If that's, if that's your response, well, you watched that movie, why? What's wrong with it? You know, you, you, you went to that party, why? What's wrong with it? And the person asking what's wrong with it is nine times out of ten, the immature person, not the strong person. I'll, I'll give you an example that one of my professors gave to me and that I thought was helpful of why what's wrong with it is a sign of immaturity. I want to imagine that Jeb Brewer won a... Uh, Contest. He's, he was the one millionth customer through into Dahl's um, grocery store. And he walks in, and the bells go off, and the people come out with the confetti, and they, they tell him he's won a prize, and the prize is he gets a minute in the money room. And the money room has got three tables piled high with, with bills. There's a table piled high with ones. There's a table piled high with fives. And there's a table piled high with twenties. And they give Jeb a sack, they give him one minute and all of his friends and family are gathered around to cheer him on and the buzzer goes off and the countdown timer starts to go and Jeb runs over to the ones table and begins cramming $1 bills into his bag at which his family and friends go, Jeb, what are you doing? And he turns around and says, what's wrong with the ones? Well, nothing. 
That's the wrong question, right? Well, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing with Christianity, with Christians who aren't looking for what's best. They're not looking for what's gonna please the Lord. They're not looking for what's the wisest thing. They just wanna know what's wrong with it. In other words, hey, I wanna do what I wanna do, so what's wrong with it? That is not the strong. The strong have thought through things. They have prayerfully committed things to the Lord. Their conscience is clean, and they're actively doing things to the glory of God. So just because you feel free to drink alcohol does not put you in the strong category. Just because you don't eat certain foods, just because you observe certain days or don't observe certain days doesn't put you in either of these categories. And that's important to remember. The weak must not judge the strong. The strong must not despise the weak. Both must be fully convinced in their minds. Both must be fully convinced in their minds. And this is really interesting to note because we might be tempted to think, well, if these differing opinions cause strife, maybe the best solution is just not to have an opinion at all. I mean, why think through these things if the result of prayerfully working through these things is conflict? Why not just, just we'll just focus on the gospel and we won't worry about anything else. Then there won't be conflict. Paul rather says, all of us are to think through these things. All of us are to have a position. All of us are to have a conviction that we've fully thought through and that we're convinced about in our own minds. And that's important because if we don't, we're going to doubt and I don't want to steal too much thunder from next week, but look at the end of chapter 14, verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You see, you need to have conviction so you can act in faith. You need to have thought things through so you can act in faith. How can you do things to the glory of God? How can you do things in faith and thankfulness to God if you've never thought it through? The solution isn't don't have an opinion. The solution is have a conviction that you keep to yourself, that you honor God with, and recognize that others are gonna have differing convictions. We all need to think these things through and be fully convinced in our own mind. There's no excuse for just, well, I just won't worry about that. Because if you don't worry about that, that'll be one area of your life that you're not <laughs> submitting to the Lordship of Christ. It'll be one area of your life that you're not glorifying God in. One area of life that you won't be acting in faith in. Because you can't serve as unto the Lord and act in faith in what you haven't thought through. And both must act in faith and thankfulness. <laughs> This is simply an application of the principle that whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything to the glory of God. All of our life should be growing in its purposefulness in submitting our life to the Lord. And so the, the brother who eats the meat needs to do it thankfully unto the Lord. The brother who does not eat the meat does that thankfully as unto the Lord, not angry and jealous that the other guy's eating. The person who observes the day should do it with thanks to the Lord. The person who does not observe the day should do it with thanks to the Lord. Whichever side you come down, strong or weak, liberty or constraint, you should do it with a glad heart, thankful as unto the Lord. Look again at verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord let, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
So both parties need to be serving and thankful to God. Both parties need to be acting in faith, giving God honor and glory. So that's how we've got to coexist. We coexist by welcoming each other in our differing convictions. Those who have liberty are not to despise the weak. Those who have constraint are not to judge the strong. All of us need to be coming fully convinced in our convictions. All of us need to be thinking through these things prayerfully. And again, Paul doesn't forbid discussion. He forbids quarreling. If you want to know, if you'd like some help, hey, I'm curious, how do you think through these things? Praise God. How do you think through whether or not to work on Sunday? How do you think through what to eat? Those can be some fantastic discussions. But the second they turn into quarreling, is when we need to stop. And we both, all of us, need to act in faith in every area of our life, whether we eat or whether we drink, and as we see, whether we live or whether we die, to give God glory and to live for him. So that's how we're to coexist. The final thing we're to look at is the reasons Paul gives why we must do this. So we, what we've seen is the context, differing opinions about differing issues. We've seen the, the different players in the situation, the weak and the strong. And we've seen the instruction given, but now why? With what force must we do this? How important is it that we do this? Why must we accept each other? Well, the first reason is seen in verse 3. Because the Lord has welcomed them both. And, and the argument is basically, who are we to not receive and welcome someone the Lord has received and welcomed? Is our standard higher than Jesus's? Is our, higher stan- is our standard higher than the Lord's? And sadly, there are probably some churches that Jesus couldn't be a member of. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, a glutton and a drunkard. The Lord has welcomed them both. We need to. We dare not have standards higher than God's. We dare not add to what is written with our own rules. Second reason, both honor and serve the Lord. Don't think for a second that if you're the strong person, that somehow because you're strong, that you're more pleasing to God, or that because you're more conservative, that you're more pleasing to God. Both, as we've seen in this text, are thankful and serve the Lord. Both are acting in faith. Both are committed to the Lordship of Christ. And to that degree, they please God. And God is pleased, like a father pleased in his child, the, the Christian who's not eating, because he's not eating to please the Lord. And he's pleased with the Christian who, understanding his freedom, is eating thankfully to God. He's pleased by both. Thirdly, each Christian will give an account to his master and you are not him. Each Christian will give an account to his master and you are not him. This is, again is another reason why we must not judge. Because there's one lawgiver and judge, James tells us, and therefore whoever would be a judge would makes himself a judge of the law. You're, you're taking God's prerogative. You're taking God's position, his right. Look at verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And then down in verse 12, so then we will each give an account of himself to God. There is gonna be a judgment. If you're tempted to think that your neighbor next to you who's exercising a little more liberty than you're comfortable with, if you're tempted to think that he hasn't thought it through, he's just being carnal, well, then you're tempted to judge the thoughts and secrets of his heart and play God. 
But you can also take confidence in the fact that the Lord will not be deceived. The Lord will, will set things straight. The Lord will fix his wagon. He'll fix my wagon if, if there's a problem. Rather, we should hope and trust that our neighbor has thought through these things and not sit in judgment on them because there is a judgment coming even for Jesus' sheep. It's not a judgment of heaven and hell, but it's still a judgment where those things we've done in faith will be burned and remain. We build on the foundation with gold and gems, but the hay and the straw that we've used gets burned up. The Lord will judge us all, and, and if we're in error, if our convictions were wrong, he will fix that. So it's, it's again, totally fine. In fact, it's right to come to someone in sin with the word of God and show them clearly, here's what the Bible says, brother. Here's what you're doing. I'd like to help. Like, that is a loving and good thing. But we're in the category, again, of not clear commands, but conscience and wisdom. And there, we're to think well, hope our brother or sister has prayed through it, and trust that the Lord will judge. Next, we see in, in point D, this wonderful promise the Lord will cause his children to stand. This sort of piggybacks off of the last point. If you're tempted to think that, well, I'm just really concerned for my brother because clearly he's, he's carnal and he's doing things that I'm not comfortable doing. And yes, I know there are conscience issues, but I still am very concerned for him and that, that his faith is good to erode. Paul warns and encourages even that the Lord is able to make him stand. He will be upheld, verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And again, we're back to Jesus shepherding his flock. Jesus is committed to bring us all to the finish line. Jesus in John 10 says, none of us are going to slip out of his hand. And so there's this great comfort and confidence that, that even if something is amiss with your brother in one of these issues, rather than becoming the detective who judges the secrets of the heart, trust that the Lord will will cause our brother to stand? Again, again, I want to be clear on this. If the issue that you're thinking about is a clear biblical issue, then the scripture commands us to deal with it. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault privately. And so if it's a clear issue, then God has spoken, and on God's authority, we go and we talk to our brother. But if we're not dealing with a clear black and white biblical issue, we should rather trust that the Lord will cause our brother to stand. Our Lord will give him knowledge and information. Our Lord will convict him. Our Lord will deal with him. The great shepherd is going to bring all of his sheep into the fold. And we can take great confidence and joy in that. Next, we read that we live and die to the Lord. And that's the whole point of this, is that both believers, the strong and the weak, are focused on living to the Lord. And the argument that Paul's making is this. Greg Rolock is not living and dying to Jeremy. So in some senses, what I think about his convictions are irrelevant. What matters is what God thinks of his convictions. We've already heard the Lord's welcomed him. And so if Greg has different convictions than I do on gray matters in the Bible, I need to recognize that Greg is not fundamentally arranging his convictions to serve and please me, but the Lord. That ideally, Greg has been praying through this. He's been thinking how to organize his home, his family, to best please the Lord. And Greg may wind up at a different place than I do. You know, John the Baptist and Jesus had very different ministry styles. Right? John the Baptist was austere. He ate only locusts and wild honey. He wore camel skin. 
lived out in the wilderness. Jesus went to dinner parties, weddings, and feasts. Both were pleasing to God. Both had thought through how they might best do their ministry and serve the Lord. And they didn't arrive at the same conclusions. What was appropriate and good for John the Baptist was not the same place that Jesus landed. And both are right. And we've got to understand that as we direct our lives to the Lord, because we live and die to him, that it's not fundamentally about what I want. It's about what he wants. And we've got to be willing to consider that God might be calling different one of us to different places. You know, a person who deals with issues of alcohol and slavery, if you've got that in your family, if there are people you know, might arrive at one conclusion. Praise God. And someone else may arrive at a different conclusion given their circumstances, their family, their background. And this passage tells us both are pleasing to God. Both are ordering their lives before the Lord. And that's good. And they should receive each other. Some here may have convictions about how to honor a certain day. Others don't. Both having prayerfully thought through it are serving God. They're living to God. And it's not fundamentally about living to me. Now next week we will see about but what if my liberty is tempting a brother to sin? Well, that's a different case. We're not dealing with that here. But all things being equal, we're ordering our lives to serve the Lord. People are not ordering their lives to serve me. And finally, in verse 8, we see that this is the reason that Jesus died and rose again, was so that all of us would order our lives towards him. All of us would serve him And that's what ultimately matters again, is that we're all prayerfully thinking through these things, that we are all submitting our lives to Christ's lordship, we are all trying to decide what's best and most pleasing to him, and that we're welcoming each other as we arrive at differing conclusions over matters of conscience. Now on the back of your insert, I have put down in nine points practically what this looks like because I think this is such an important teaching because so much quarreling and so much strife can arise in churches over these types of issues. Different convictions on even simpler things like what color should the choir robes be or you know, do you have a center aisle or two aisles on the side or what instruments are on the worship team or all sorts of other issues that people have prayerfully reached different conclusions on. How do we handle that? Well, the one option is just find a church that agrees with you. Understand if that's the option you choose, nobody matures, nobody acts in faith, nobody becomes more Christ-like, it's just a lot easier and more comfortable. Or we can take the road of faith, receive the instruction God's word gives us, and grow in the image of our Lord and Savior. So I'd encourage you, take some time to read through that. Um, Christ has called us to peace. He's called us to be a variegated body. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different perspectives, different cultures, different associations with things. We're at different places in our spiritual growth and walk. And while there are issues in the Bible that are clear and black and white and non-negotiable, under the law of liberty, as James calls it, there are other areas that are gray, that that take wisdom and, and take discernment and are matters of conscience. And Paul tells us that We are to accept each other. We are not to judge each other. And we should take great hope in the fact that the Lord Jesus will cause us to stand and to bring us and our brothers all the way to the fold. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for your word.
We thank you for the instruction that you've given. And Lord, we just pray that you would guard us from both ditches, from the arrogance of looking down on those who have narrower convictions than we do, and the judgmental heart that judges our brother in areas that you have not clearly written. Help us instead to not look at each other, but direct our lives towards you. Take our sights off of what my neighbor's doing and put my sights on you. Help, help all of us to live lives of faith and thankfulness to you. And Lord, we just pray that you would bring us safely to the finish line, that you would bring us into your fold. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not your sheep, who has not come to put their faith in Jesus, Lord, I just pray that you would work in their heart even now. You would let there be light and life where there is darkness and death. Lord, you can do it. It's your great pleasure to do it. We just pray that you would. In Jesus' name. Amen.